going to come to realize um, I really like the Bible Project. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of intro videos um, to the topics that we're going to be talking about, um, just because I find that they explain um, complex theological or Bible teachings in a very simple, understandable manner, and I just think it's a really great way of introducing um, these different topics. So the next topic that we're going to talk about is eternal life, how eternal life works, how do we understand it, how do we experience it practically. Since the, um, for a very long time, humanity has been very interested in seeking eternal life. How do we lengthen our longevity? How do we live more than the 80 or 90 years that we experience Mark Twain wrote, it would be great if we could be born at the age of 80 and slowly work, work our way up to the age of 18. And uh, history states that many people wrote about this idea of a fountain of youth, a, a, a pool where once you step into it, it allows you to live forever. It gives you youthfulness. And so there are different accounts of Spanish conquistadors who would make these, um, who would invest large amounts of money and bring lots of people in search of this particular fountain of youth. And if you look at uh, where we are today, we're not much different in that if you look at the makeup industry, it is a $100 billion industry because as humans, we are very interested in lengthening um, our lives and even appearing young, even if we are not. So in the Bible, it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God has put eternity into our hearts. In other words, there is something in our hearts that tells us it doesn't feel right that life is transient. And so whenever you go to a funeral, people cry. And the reason why we cry is because there's something in our hearts that says, this is not right. And this, what this verse is saying is that God is saying, yeah, you're right. It's not right. As a matter of fact, there's a promise in the Bible that talks of living life eternally. So the question is, how do we then experience eternal life? In John chapter 17, verse 3, there's this very simple verse that gives uh, – that has very significant meaning. Um, and here's how it goes. It says, And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. And so eternal life is knowing Jesus. So the video that we just watched gave this theological framework, a biblical explanation of how forgiveness works the fact that Jesus died for our sins, and the implications of what that forgiveness means. And so today what I want to do is instead of really focusing on the theological or the Bible teaching part of how that forgiveness works, I want to talk about the practical implications of forgiveness, the practical implications of forgiveness. So there's, there are three steps that are three points that I'm just going to make in this next talk. The first uh, tip or the first point is expect failure. Whenever we think of separation from God or whenever we think of being lost or whenever we think of this idea of sin, it's connected to this idea of failure. I have not done 
enough. I have not done the right thing. And what I want to do is talk about salvation or this promise of eternal life from the context of failure. And so here are a few verses that I think are quite helpful in understanding how God views us in our failure, how God views our sin, and how we can have that assurance that there is security, acceptance, and salvation in Christ Jesus. So here's the first verse. It's Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. The Bible says something about sin. It says, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. The Bible says that we are born with this significant disadvantage, and that disadvantage is uh, being born under the category of a sinner. And so if you look at the next verse, here in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, it says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Now, there is this comparison between the righteous and the wicked. And what I want to highlight is the common denominator between both. And if you look at the common denominator, the Bible simply states that both are sinners. Both fail. Both the righteous and the wicked make mistakes. And I think a lot of times we get caught up on that word sin. Because in certain languages, when you translate the word sin, it implies criminal. Right? If you are a sinner, it means you're a bad person. And I think one of the challenges of approaching and understanding the Bible is really grappling with this idea of being categorized as a sinner. And what I want to highlight here is being a sinner doesn't necessarily mean that you're a criminal. It just means that you are not 100% righteous. You could be a 99% of the time good, wonderful person. But if in that 1% of the time we are not a wonderful person, basically the Bible is simply saying we are then still in need of salvation. Does that make sense? And so rather than being seen as a derogatory, you are a criminal, it's more saying everybody is in need of salvation. And here what I love about this is that the Bible is very realistic. The point is that everybody is self-centered. Everybody is selfish. Everybody has sinned. And so the difference between the righteous person and the wicked person is not sinlessness. It's not what you do when you make a mistake. The difference between the two is what you do after you have made a mistake. So here's the sec second point that I'd like to highlight here. The first is expect failure. The second point is take responsibility for that failure. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, the verse says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. I think it's one of the most difficult things to come to grips with your failure. And uh, what I've noticed in myself is that I have different uh, defensive mechanisms. And uh, the first defensive mechanism is avoidance. Uh, I remember in the sixth grade, our teacher used to uh, give us our grade reports prior to the end of the term. And basically, it was just letting us know how we were tracking along. It was to give us a progress update. And we were supposed to go to our parents and then show our parents how we're tracking along. And so uh, I was looking at my grade report, <coughs> and my friend looked over my shoulder to see how I had done. And she was like, you got an F in English. And I looked at her, and I was like, that F stands for fantastic. I don't know what you're worried about. 
and basically there was kind of like this avoidance where I just kind of wave my hand over the pro- uh, wave my hand over the problem, and I was kind of expecting my Jedi powers to kick in and just kind of like there is no problem, there is no failure. Another defensive mechanism that I practice, especially as a Christian, is kind of like baptizing my problem and just acknowledging, you know what, God is going to make this problem turn into um, a success for his name's sake. So you just, every time I have a struggle or problem, it's like, you know what, it's okay, God's got it under control. And uh, yeah, I just call this baptizing the problem. Um, For those of you who know me well, I am not a punctual individual. And uh, moving to Melbourne for the first time was a big challenge because I had to get used to public transportation. And the reality is that the bus and the tram, they are just not going to wait for you. And so what happened is I ran a lot to get to my bus stop on time (laughs) to get to the train station and get to the tram stops. And what would inevitably happen is I'd be getting ready in the morning and I'd think, look at my watch. I've got time. It's okay. 15 minutes would go, go by and I'm like, I still got 20 minutes. I'm good. And then four minutes left to go. I'm like, oh no, I just chuck everything in the backpack and run out the door. And what happened this one time is I left my backpack unzipped. And as I was running out the door, my favorite Bible popped out of my backpack. And as I got to my appointment, I was supposed to give a Bible study. I reached into my backpack and realized the Bible wasn't there. I was like, oh no. It was like such a nice Cambridge Bible, and the leather was like. Uh, like Monaco leather or something. I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't know if they have cows in Monaco, but it was Monaco leather. And you smell it and you just feel like you're on the farm. Like it was like high quality leather. Um, So anyway, the day ends, I go back to my bus stop and I'm just like retracing my steps. And as I retrace my steps, I'm kind of hoping to, to, to find that lost Bible. And what I realized is somebody had come and picked it up and they kept it. Now, Instead of going, oh, Roy, why are you always so late? Okay, next time, I'm just going to be on time. How I rationalized that problem, I was like, you know what? Praise God. Somebody picked up my Bible, and now maybe they can come to love Jesus the way that I love Jesus. It's, it's a good scenario all around. And what I, find, what I find is that it's so easy to take our problems and just say, you know what? It's going to be okay. But the reality is when we don't face and take responsibility for those problems, they just continue to perpetually exist. And so now as a 35-year-old, Jinha's like, you know we're going to be late, right? And I'm like, I'll be there. there." And so as we take responsibility, what the gospel does, what the fact that this promise of Jesus dying for us does is it, it allows us to take responsibility for our shortcomings It allows us to address those shortcomings, and it allows us to grow out of those shortcomings. So notice here, the text says, whoever confesses and forsakes their sins will have mercy. There is a God who gives us this ground where we can grow safely. And I want to talk about that on the third point. The third point is have a safe place where you can fail. So notice we've talked about expect failure. We are born into sin. We are born sinners. Take responsibility for your failure. God gives us a space where we can learn to grow and overcome those shortcomings. And finally, have a safe place where you can fail. There is a system that God uses to give us assurance, security, and have a knowledge of salvation. I want to spend a bit of time talking about that. There's a lady by the name of Twyla Tharp. 
And Twyla Tharp is a Grammy Award-winning uh, choreographer. And I don't know if you've ever watched modern dance choreography, but it's very – I'm not artistic, so I don't really understand it. Like, So when I watch it, I'm like, wow, that person's really flexible. And um, so Twyla Tharp, she – Choreogra- uh, she produces choreography for uh, a number of, of movies, uh, Broadway musicals, and she's just really, really well-known in, uh, in, in her field. And an um, interviewer asked her, a journalist asked Twyla Tharp, hey, so what makes you so successful in your field? And she says, I have a safe place where I can make mistakes. And she says, every single morning from 4 to 6 a.m., I lock myself in a room, I put on a video camera, and I practice new movements in front of that camera. And so if you look at the finished product of modern dance, chore- or, uh, modern dance, you already know it's very unique. Can you imagine getting to the point where you finalize those movements? And what she's saying is, for two hours, I look ridiculous in front of this camera. And if I can have 10 seconds of good movement, I feel like that's been a successful day. 10 seconds of good movement. So if you think about that, she has to watch herself for an hour and 50 seconds every single day of failing and looking ridiculous so she can get 10 seconds of good movement. And what she's saying is because I have that environment where nobody can see me, where nobody can judge me, I feel safe and secure to then go and do great things. And that's where I get my movement. There's a passage here in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, that describes that similar environment. So if you have your white Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, and what we're going to do is we're going to move backwards in this text. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, so we're going to start in verses Uh, 7 and 8. It's page 907. Page 907 in your white Bibles, Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start reading verses 7 and 8. Here's what the Bible says. Now, Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So notice here, the Bible highlights the fact that in the category of sin, we are considered enemies of Christ. But here in Romans, the author of Romans says that God shows his love to us and that while we are separated from God, while we are sinners, God shows his love by giving Jesus to die for us. And what the text is saying is that there is an environment of safety where you may feel like you're not living your life the way that God would have you live it. Or there's a sense of guilt or shame from something in the past where you just think, I'm not a good person. And what the Bible is saying is you can, in that moment, experience the love and acceptance of God. The text then goes on to say what happens in that environment of safety. And so what I'd like to do with you is start from verses 3, and we're going to read to verse 5, 
and this passage is going to talk about what that environment of safety is supposed to do for us. Verse 3. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. There's this pattern of growth that is described in these few passages. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, Paul, the author, is saying, in life, we're going we're gonna to experience trial and difficulty. And what happens is, as we face trial and difficulty, there are going to be moments where that trial and that difficulty gets the best of us. I experience that almost every day in the car as I'm driving because somebody cuts me off and inevitably I get really upset and um, in my mind I'm thinking, why you drive like that? <laughs> I, I, my, my biggest pet peeve in Melbourne is how you know some lanes double up as parking spots and uh, there are times where people drive in the middle of the two lanes, so they're driving next to the parking spot but then they're also halfway in the, uh, in, in the actual free lane that's one of my biggest pet peeves. I just, in my mind, I'm thinking, pick one lane. You can't drive in both. And this is like the one place, the one city where people drive in the middle of the roads. Actually, there are probably other countries. But anyway, so in my mind, I become a very critical, angry person. And so there are moments where we face trial and difficulty, and those circumstances get the best of us, and it brings out the worst in us. And so there are moments where we fail. But what happens in that environment of safety is the author says, from trial comes patience or endurance. And actually, let me just look at that uh, exact translation here where it says, uh, from trials, they help us develop endurance. Yeah. And so as we continue to face those same trials over and over and over and over, in those moments where we feel like we're bad people, there are times where we connect to the love of God and what it does is it gives us strength to revisit that same trial. And eventually we get to the place where we're able to overcome that trial. You know, this week I was very happy because there was a moment where somebody did cut me off. And I was like, I'm just going to take a couple breaths. Uh, I'm going to take a couple breaths. I'm just going to slow down rather than tailgating them. And I'm just going to let them continue driving and everybody's going to be happy. There are moments where you overcome that trial and you develop something called endurance. If you consistently practice endurance, there's another area of growth that happens, and it says endurance, in verse 4, develops strength of character. That endurance becomes a part of who you are. And as your character, consi you're consistently able to overcome that challenge. Notice here in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, it says it gives us a confident hope of salvation. In other words, there's this idea of like, God, if you have changed me, then I know that you've created me to become this worthy person who is valuable, who is worthy of salvation. So here's the question. How do we then tap into this environment of safety and security? How do we tap into this environment of growth where we sense safety, security, and salvation, even in the midst of failure, guilt, shame, and sin? Here's what the verse says in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, 
Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. Now, pay attention to the wording here. He's, Paul writes, it is through faith that we stand in this place of undeserved privilege. You could use another word for undeserved privilege. You could replace those two words with the word grace. And Paul describes grace as a place, not an idea. So he says, by faith, you can stand in grace. It's kind of like this room of safety, this room of undeserved privilege. And so how do we enter in? The Bible says, through faith. Now, that's a very theoretical word. Notice what the verse says here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. How do we connect through faith? Here it says, for in Christ Jesus, faith works through love. And the Greek word for works is energio. And so faith is energized by this fact that God loves us. And so if there's a sense of God, you love me even if I don't see value in myself. God, you love me despite my failures, even despite my accomplishments. You love me. That is why I'm worthy. It then triggers in our minds this acknowledgement that, well, if God loves me even in my current state, then it means that there is acceptance for me. And we have then come to acknowledge that space of grace. So this is a very theoretical idea, the fact that there is forgiveness. And I'm going to do my best to try and explain this theoretical idea from the head so that we can experience it in the heart. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. The author of Hebrews here describes the nature of what Jesus has done for us to try and help us to connect with that idea of forgiveness. So here's what the verse says. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. So notice here, the author of Hebrews is saying, you can identify with Jesus and the fact that he has forgiven you. Here's how. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So here in the text, it's saying that Jesus lived as a human being. He was surrounded by humans who were sinful. He lived through a sinful world. And because he went through that sinful world, because he suffered and faced the same temptations, the, the same struggles, the same challenges that you and I faced, he is able to then give us mercy. In other words, a summary of this verse is saying that Jesus understands you. Jesus understands you. When I was dating Jinha, um, something that we talked about a lot was our future. And we were both studying in Michigan at Andrews University, and I knew at the end of my time at Andrews, I would move here to Australia um, because there was, a, there was work opportunity. 
uh, there was work opportunity and work obligation. And the source of every single argument was what we would do in the future. And so our conversations would go like this. Jin Hao would say, okay, so you're planning on moving to Australia, and um, what do you think is going to happen in our relationship? And I was like, oh, well, um, I suppose you'll come with me because that's normally what happens in relationships, right? And she would say, so you want me to leave my family? You want me to leave my job? You want me to leave all of my friends and move to a foreign country with you where I don't know anybody and there's no job security? And I'd go, yeah, sounds about right. And she would, and then we would argue. And I'm like, why would like Melbourne is the most livable city in the world? Why would you not want to come to Melbourne? And so we would have these arguments over and over and over and over again. And she would repeat this statement, Roy, you don't understand me. Now, to give you a little bit of a background information about myself, I grew up in a home with two other Korean men. My mother passed away at, at, when I was uh, in high school. And so whenever it came to communicating and understanding each other, like I know what the word understand means, but I don't know what it means. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so Jin Hao would say, you don't understand me. And I would say, no, I do understand. I understand. You should come with me to Australia. And then argument, right? Explosion. <laughs> so I think there was a period of, seven months where <laughs> we just kind of constantly had this conversation. And one time I was in my room and I was thinking, you know, I guess it is hard for Jinha. She doesn't know anybody in Melbourne and that is a big move. And so, yeah, I get that. I, I get why that would be a struggle. I get that she's in a job that she currently loves right now and she really values the work that she's doing. And so it would be hard for her to leave. And of course, I am asking her to leave her family. And so I give her a call, and I, Jin Ha picks up the phone, and I say, hey, look, I've been thinking through all these things, and look, let's just, we'll just do long distance. And in my mind, I was thinking, like, we're just going to do long distance until like, the end of time. Like, I don't know when we're going to work through these issues, but we'll do long distance until we figure it out. And there's this silence on the other end of the phone. And Jin Ha then responds to me, I'll go with you to Australia. Now, you would think that I'd be happy, but then I was really frustrated because <laughs> I was like, I came to the point where I'm ready to say we can do long distance, and now you're going to come with me? Like, why did we argue for seven months? <laughs> and as I asked Jinha that question, she says, because you understand me, because I know you value what I'm giving up for you, and you know how much I care for you. And so... Because I know you get my heart, you get me, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And so here's what Jesus is saying when he dies on the cross for us. He is saying, I understand what it means to be human. I get that it's hard to be perfect. It's impossible to be perfect. I get the difficult circumstances you're in. I get your family background. I get the unfairness of this world. And that's why I'm going to die on the cross for you so that you know there's forgiveness for you even if it's impossible to be perfect. And that's what the cross communicates. Jesus is saying, I suffered and I get your suffering. Now what, that, what the cross does is it communicates two things. One, that God gets us. But what he's also hoping is that we will get God. See, think about this. The Bible is saying Jesus 
is the king of the universe, the son of God. The, the Bible says that Jesus is divine. He is life itself. And the question is, how do you kill life? How do you kill God? He's immortal. Nothing can kill God. But here in the biblical narrative, in the Bible story, it says that sin kills the Son of God. Sin kills life. Sin is such a powerful, powerful thing that it can end the life of an immortal. And what Jesus is hoping is that as we meditate on the cross, as we meditate what sin did to him, that we will understand his heart and say, God, I get that sin and selfishness is destructive. And so I will let go of it in my own life. And in that interaction, in that relationship of God understanding our sinfulness and us understanding what sin does to him, there's a relationship that's built up. And back to John chapter 17, verse 3, it says, this is eternal life, that you might know Jesus Christ. And so what God is hoping is that, or what God is offering is this gift of eternal life, this freedom from sin, this, this salvation. And as we contemplate the cross, as we contemplate him, we will come to experience salvation, we'll experience growth, we'll experience forgiveness. So in summary, expect failure, take responsibility for your failure, have a safe place where you can fail, and may you experience the gospel. What I want to do at this point <laughs> is play a video for you, and um, as this video is being played, as the music is being played, I'm going to invite Janelle and Caroline to pass out a decision card. And this decision card is not meant to pressure you. It's not, it's not meant to pressure those who don't want to respond to it. It's really an invitation to those who do want to respond to it. And so Janelle and Caroline are going to be passing out this card and some pens to you. And on this card, it's going to have it's going to ask for your name, your contact details, and there's a little box that says, I'd like to learn more about what it means to give my life to Jesus. I'd like to learn more about what it means to give my life to Jesus. And if, if this is something that's genuinely of interest to you, please tick that box. We'll make sure and follow up on these, um, on these cards, and uh, we'd love to give you that opportunity to respond and, and guide you through that process. So please enjoy the video as you uh, think about filling out this card. I invite you to uh, take the cards that you filled out and pass them to the center aisle. There are baskets under your chairs, and um, the ushers will come and pick up the baskets. So for those of you who filled out the cards, feel free to drop them in the baskets, and the ushers will come by and pick them up. So just a little heads up for next week. Uh, we're covering the idea of morality um, in two parts. Uh, we talked about the fact that Jesus has forgiven us, and so the next question that we're going to be tackling is, if Jesus has died for us, then what role does morality play, and what responsibilities do we have um, as a result of that forgiveness that's provided? So we'll be covering morality, part one, and part two next Saturday at 1015. Would you join me in prayer as we finish for today? Father God, uh, we come before you 
and as we've contemplated Jesus as your son and the fact that he provides forgiveness for us, I just want to pray that that idea, that historical event would really transform uh, our lives, our hearts. May we come to know you personally as a result of that event and that promise. We pray these things in your name. Amen. One more announcement. Um, there's a book called Steps to Christ that uh, we've put out uh, at the front table near the entrance. If uh, Basically, it's a step-by-step uh, -step, um, explanation of how we can grow in Christ. And so it's a pretty short book. It's about uh, a little less than 100 pages. Uh, but I highly recommend uh, reading through that book if you have that question of God, what does it mean to know Jesus? And so uh, that book is available for you um, if you'd like to grab that. Um, at this time, we have lunch, and so we hope that you can join us. Um, and uh, there's a free meal. We'd love to spend time with you and get to know you better. Thank you.